if they're not working crazy overtime. There's like a lack of politics because like the appropriate communication and feedback system is already there. Then like, great, let's just make sure that that stays healthy. I have not seen that very often. <laughs> and I'm usually put in a position where like we have to try to get there. Welcome back everybody to Building Better Games. As leaders, part of our job is spotting the problems that get in our team's way and then changing things to remove those issues. But in a world where problems are easier to spot than to solve, it is easy to burn out trying to change everything or worse, burning the team out with changing too many things. Some common questions that come up. How do I make positive changes stick? What do I do if my team resists the changes I want to make? How do I pick which changes to make at all? Our guest today is Leslie Sullivan, a senior leader in games who has worked at Blizzard, Riot, and a host of other studios on some of the biggest games out there. She's been helping teams deliver content for over a decade, and she's learned a thing or two to help teams become more effective. Leslie, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. You know, one thing that comes up for me right off the bat and Ben and I have been talking a lot about this, and I have a sneaking suspicion that some of this is going to resonate with you, that, you know, I think we make a lot of assumptions about what a producer is. And we often run into the realities of how the industry, generally speaking, views that role. So it's like, here we are already, right? Having this conversation about like all the changes we want to make. But I think that there are actually a lot of companies where maybe that's not what you want to be doing as a producer, or maybe if you think that's what you should be doing, you might step on a couple landmines really quickly and people will be like, whoa, what are you trying to do? Aren't you the Jira person? <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious what comes up for you when I say that. Have you run into any of those sort of conflicting assumptions? And what do you feel like is the role of a producer in your experience? Yeah, there are a lot of studios out there who think they know what they want in, out of a producer. And they'll be very clear about it and I find that's where it gets a little tricky about morphing that to either what you expect a producer to do or what you would like to do professionally or how you think the, the studio might benefit from production, like good production practices. Where I've definitely been at studios who are like, OK, you're a producer. You're going to come in and do exactly what they've always been doing. No questions asked. Right. Like just keep the train running, whatever as broken as that is, whereas there are there have definitely been other studios I've been at who've acknowledged that like, hey, we don't have good production practices or we would like to figure out a better way of doing this. And that's who we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who will actually come in and explore that. What does that look like? And it's that's like a such a healthy thing, I think, to try to find in a studio is a place that is willing to explore, acknowledge that it's not the best. They don't have the best practices at that point in time and then go on that journey with you. And so for me, like my, in my personal like history and also what I would like to do as a producer from you know, now until the end of time is I love looking for those challenges in terms of how can we work better together, even if it's like semi-functional now. If it's working and people are not burnt out, if they're not working crazy overtime, if they're, there's like a lack of politics because like the appropriate communication and like feedback system is already there, then like, great, let's just make sure that that stays healthy. 
I have not seen that very often. <laughs> and so I'm usually I'm usually put in a position where like we have to try to get there. That's like the North Star. And so uh, that's always what I'm I'm on the lookout for is like looking for a place that wants to, to do better. And that's that's how I view my role is uh, it's a lot of process improvement. It's not the person I'm not like a, an, an old school executive producer. At least like that's like the mentality that I have always uh, taken on with me that uh, like the old school executive producers in games are like the ones calling the shots and they're 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 the ones with the, the spreadsheets of all the money and they're going to do all that stuff. Uh, I've never worked for somebody like that. And that's not what I want to do either. But it's uh, yeah, it's all it's all about just like healthy processes. How can people work better together? And I guess that's that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is because baked into the picture you painted is this idea that you want some like forward momentum. Like you almost don't care what the state is today. Mm-hmm. After a certain point, you're just like the first question you ask is like, okay, how could I make this better? And there's something interesting about that because, you know, Ben and I often talk about leadership versus management as a concept. And one of the things we describe as leadership is that what you just described, that just constantly wanting to pull everything towards a slightly better state tomorrow than it is today. And uh, management as basically just taking care of the existing system. Like you said, I think you described it as uh, making the train show up on time or um, or running the train or... No matter how much the tracks are in the wrong spot and broken. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, does anyone even want to go to this city? I don't care. <laughs> the train was on time. Like, yeah, it's that kind of stuff. And so it's interesting that, you know, I you for you, it sounds like leadership is baked into that, into the role. Yeah. It's funny. I like I don't even really think about it that way. Like, it's not like I go into a role and I'm like, I'm going to be a leader. But that's just <laughs> it, yes, you're totally right. It is inherent to that role because I'm I'm trying to get like buy in from the team. I'm trying to get to know like who they are, what they work on, everything that goes into it, and then think of appropriate solutions to the problems that they have raised and making sure that they are okay with it. That's that that buy-in. And then being able to like to defend it and to speak to senior leadership about how we're doing and why we're making these changes and why it makes sense. And and the results of like, are people happier? Are they working less hours? Is the quality of the thing better? Yeah, it lends itself. To, it's, it is, you're right. It's totally leadership, whether that's the way you think of it or, or not. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think one of the things you realize when you've done enough team leadership work is that there's the efficacy of the process itself. Like, like what kind of change do you make? What kind of process works for this team? You know, how, you know, like you said, sticking with it, going through the motions for enough time to where it really sticks and gels. There's another piece to it too that you mentioned when we were talking to you before we we recorded today, which is like the idea of like resistance and the nature of the resistance and the different kinds of resistance, which sort of, I you know, I think resistance is the sort of the negative side or the negative output of what happens when people have some kind of cultural inclination or, or way that they're stuck culturally or something like that. And I'm curious because I think that the the nature of the resistance some often does kind of dovetail into like how you have to address it from a process way. So, and, and you mentioned this a lot and I'm at, it's the thing I'm most curious about 
what are the kinds of resistance that you've run into across the various teams that you've led? Like, I, I'm wondering, are there like different kinds of buckets of resistance? Like you mentioned one, which is like, this is the way we've always done things. That's like a classic one, sort of like the appeal to tradition or, or whatever. <laughs> it's like, what are the kinds of resistance that you've run into? Yeah, appeal to tradition has definitely been a big one of them, but I feel like that has been a surprisingly easier one to deal with mm-hmm. <laughs> for many yeah. reasons. Yeah. Other one has been more individual focused, which I honestly, in my personal experience, has been very similar. It's a, you know, traditionally, this is how we've done it. Mm-hmm. But like that tradition has been set by a particular person. So the way they do it. Yeah, the way they do it. And they also have a lot of sway over the team because they're in a position of power or knowledge. They're driving the product, whatever that may be. So it's been kind of a mix of both. Like either this is the way the team has done it. This is the way the studio does it. Or this is how like me as an individual, this is how I've always run it. And it's, I don't want it to change. Those have been the, the three, at least the three buckets I've seen. I'm trying to think of anything else has how what else has come up in terms of resistance, but that has been, I think that's been mostly it. I wanted to ask you more about the the idea because that one really struck me, the sort of like other influential person or other influential leader who's like, no, <laughs> like well, I, this, is, I like it this way. And so we're going to do it this way. That's a classic one for sure. That's a hard one too. Because like that person is influential for a reason, whether those are good reasons or bad reasons (laughs) is a whole separate conversation. But like, you know, you're the new person, right? So you can't just be like, fuck you. Like you have to have a a high, a little bit more efficacy than that in your approach. So I'm curious, like, what do you do in those situations? Like, how do you work through that? What's your approach? So the like notable time I have run into this, I had to get to know that person a little bit better to understand what worked for them currently. Like, why were they working that way? Like really drilling down into, okay, so you don't want to change either the tool we're using or the way we're meeting or planning work. What about how we work right now is working for you and what is not? So I start with them as an individual. Because it turns out, I feel like when you really start digging into it, there are a lot of things that are broken and they have a lot of complaints about the way that they work. And then I'm like, okay, great. Why don't we try this particular thing? Whether that's a change of process or a change in the tool. In my particular case, it was a change for both of those. But also uh, semi like bargaining with them, which is like, let's just try it out for a little bit. (laughs) Like let's agree to a set period of time where we were going to try it out and also get like a promise from them that they will do a good faith effort in also doing it, actually going going through the motions and participating. If you don't get that, then there's a lot more relationship building that has to work. And I think things get a little complicated at that point. I think that's, you know, that's not a topic for probably this podcast, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that speaks to greater like trust problems or, you know, willing to work with each other problems. And then after that step, when I did finally transition us to another tool that was more effective for like a bigger team um, than what they already had, it was also finding out like parts of that tool that were appealing to that person. So how could they better use it? What would get them to use it more? How could it be more effective for them? And once I was able to like dig through everything and find what actually made their lives easier, they acknowledged, oh, like 
this is actually cool. I'm like, oh, you know, like, you actually saw the value in it finally. But it did take a lot of like one-on-one trying to work with this person for a couple months to like figure out what actually, what matters to them. Yeah. And I had the care. Like they, they were, again, that influential person for a reason. They were very skilled at their job. They've been doing this for a long time. They were a big stakeholder. And I'm not going to change that. <laughs> like I was an associate producer coming in and being like, okay, guys, let's go try this new uh, project management tool. I wasn't about to disrupt anything bigger than that. And so that was probably my first real effort on my part into being like really diplomatic uh, was uh, working with this person to appeal to them and then get us to a, a good spot. But, you know, it ended up benefiting the team at large. And I think honestly, like that person, because like he had been there for such a long time, I don't think the views on production or the production processes were limited to just him anyways. Like, you know, it was indicative of how the wider team felt. And they also needed to be, you know, swayed to use this thing or work a, a different way. And so it was like a helpful exercise overall to uh, do the work and, and do the diplomacy to get there. Mm. What do you think are the key skills that you've acquired that allow you to be better and more efficient at driving change now than you were, say, like eight years ago or six years ago or whatever? Oh, hmm. I think it's uh, it's that analysis part of like what are the problems and why are they like why why are things not working? I've gotten better at that, and instead of like jumping to a oh like let's just default do this process because you know I think it's worked before, it's really tailoring changes to the particular problem and really finding that like the nugget of what what is the issue. Is it just too many meetings or are the meetings themselves just not valuable? And if that's the case, how can we make those valuable? Because clearly like they still need to talk to each other as an example. Being able to better identify like what that core is, I think has led to me leveling up most. And I, I think uh, you, you two have seen my resume. It's a little messy. Uh, I, I've like on average switched jobs like every single year for the past four years. That's what you do now, right? Uh, yeah. like that's, that's like the hot new way to manage your career. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gaining popularity for sure. You know, and, and it's always been for like good reasons. You know, I want yeah, to yeah. go do new things, new opportunities. It's very cool and exciting. Um, but I think that has also helped me a lot because I get a lot of exposure to just new mindsets, new new problems, yeah. new challenges. Yeah. I You know, all, all the other producers I work with have had their own experiences and like it's just like it's such a satisfying assimilation of information yeah. I get every single time I go somewhere new and I love like ingesting that really quickly and understanding why it has or has not worked for that place I currently am in and then yeah. I, can, I always take it for the future I think people don't like to acknowledge this uh, especially companies for obvious reasons because they would prefer probably that you stayed longer but I think it you spot you you put your finger on something really interesting there, which is like, the I, I have some very close colleagues that have had that more of a career path that looks like that. And I would say that in every single company, they got a massive frame shift. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get a massive frame shift, it like forces a reassessment of a lot of the assumptions you made and like forces you to learn a bunch of new skills very quickly. I mean, honestly, I think most people could agree that the first 120 days on a new job are pretty stressful and can be very difficult because yeah. you have no idea what you're doing. 
You have no trust established with anybody except whatever you came in the door with. And so it's like, honestly, I think in many respects, my experience has been like after a year, I'm like, okay, I finally have a good grip on everything that's going on here. And so I, I think there's this assumption that like people who are spending about a year or one to two years in each place are like jumping ship. But I actually think that it's actually quite difficult in many ways to do that too. So, and I, I think I noticed there's a wisdom that's developed there in my friends and colleagues who have done that. It's like, you know, they'll hear me gripe about something work-related and they'll be like, yeah, that's like, just so you know, very specifically like a riot thing or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, and so, and I, <laughs> And I think that it's worth noting, like, I think it is important to get different perspectives. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about one that came up for me when you were listing off the different types of resistance. One that Ben and I have run into a lot, and I'm wondering if this resonates with you, is uh, the idea of the, the phrase lack of agency came up for me, which is like, Ben and I will sit down with a team and, and I, Ben, I honestly think that we run into this one almost more than a lot of the other kinds of resistance in our world, where it's not like, screw you, you're not the boss of me, like, you can't tell me what to do, or you're just a dumb producer, I don't care what you think. It's like, hey, that all sounds great. I can't do that because I'm too busy doing these things. Or I can't do that because Jim, the vice president said that he gets to call the shots, and we don't get to make decisions. And so we just do what Jim tells us to do, like this general sort of feeling of like, we don't have any power. We don't have any authority. We just wait until someone gives us our next sort of order, marching order. And then we do that. So like, Leslie, it sounds great. All your cool ideas and everything, but like, this is all above our pay grade. Like we, I'm wondering if you've run into that sort of thing, because I, I was actually shocked at how often we ran into teams who felt that way. Yeah. I run into this pretty often in terms of game teams that make uh, specific types of content or mm. like expected content, especially that feeling of like, oh, well, we got to do it. That's what we've been told. So we have to adhere to this particular release schedule or these are you know the expectations. And usually what I do when I run into that is I'm very annoying about it and I, I push it. <laughs> I'm like, is that, is that true? Like, really? Are, have you just gotten used to being told that that's the case and yeah. we haven't had like a like a, a real discernible effort to push back on that, which is totally fair. Like, I do think like that takes a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. It's draining to have that kind of conversation and, you know, find a, a solution, especially when it feels like you're you're butting up against a wall just from the get go. And so usually what I have done in the past is, again, going back into like really drilling down into what what is it that people really need and or want. Mm -hmm. And finding out what that means for, in this example, like a content release cadence, like what, what numbers are we trying to hit? You know, what actually matters to the game? And are there alternative ways that we can do this? The reason why I, I like have run into this before is either people are kind of burnt out on making that kind of thing. And so they would like to be able to free up their time to go explore new things, either new types of game content, or they are just burnt out professionally themselves um, and mm -hmm. would like to reclaim a little bit of that time back. Or they're just like straight up overworked to begin yeah. with. Like they can't even, you know, meet that minimum criteria. And so it's, I, I think like a lot of those complaints come from a place of, yes, they feel like they have no power over what they're actually making. And trying to take a little bit of that burden or most of that 
burden onto me to have those conversations with like the right stakeholders mm. is part of that process. And that's like a long one too. Like it's, you're not going to have one conversation in a meeting room and be like, all right, boys, we, we solved it. You don't have to work as hard anymore. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's like a whole bunch of like, you know, you go through this process of identifying what are the different levers that we can pull in terms of uh, number of things or how long something is or like even the quality. Can we make things simpler? Mm-hmm. I don't like to say we bring down the quality a little bit, but like there are sometimes moments where we have to reevaluate, like, what are we actually making? And are we going overboard? Like, are we are we setting these standards way too high for ourselves for arbitrary reasons? Because like, that's just what we're used to. I'll say it. I think we could all do to bring the quality <laughs> down a lot bit. You heard it here. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm like, and by the way, like, you know what I'm talking about when I say quality. I'm talking about all the pretty stuff yeah. that everyone focuses too much. I'm like, we can't launch a game without it falling over and breaking after two days <laughs> and crashing on everyone's machines. Stop it. That's the quality we should focus on. All right, I'm done. It's such a tricky conversation to have too, because like a lot of, uh, especially like AAA companies, I mean, I guess it goes for any, a lot of studios. Yeah. Where they will just like not release something until it hits whatever that is. Yeah. The ones that feel like mm. they can't just use the early access loop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a it's a tough process, and even if you can get marginal results from having that conversation, it's I think it's a win because once you show people like, okay, we made this change, and the game looks different as a result of it, whether it's the change in you know again the cadence or whatever it is, quality, whatever it is, and it it proves itself to not completely ruin your game. Uh, then that opens up the conversation for for other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you poked on something earlier. You said, um, you know, this isn't like a conversation you have once in a meeting and then you change all the things. And there's this idea baked into a lot of what we're talking about around like change is not an instantaneous process, mm-hmm. whether it's changing for people that have lack of agency, whether it's change against people who are appealing to tradition or an individual who has a strong way that they like to work. Like all of these, when you're going in and you're going, okay, I see a problem, it's much easier to go, I see a problem and I can think of a solution to it than it is to actually be seeing the positive impacts of that established and understood by the teams that they want to conceive. Like, how do you think about the time it's going to take and the investment it's going to take around sort of particular changes? For a a larger change like that, I guess with any, it doesn't even have to be a big change, but if we're anything from like, Hey, we want to have better communication methods and like talking with this team. So like, let's, let's propose a new meeting cadence or whatever it may be to, you know, like this bigger conversation of like, we need to reevaluate how we release things. Setting expectations with that group, no matter how small or big it is, I think is, is the, the way to go about it or is a way to go about it in terms of we are going to start doing this thing, implementing this process with this either date or this patch during the pre-production or production period, whatever it may be, whatever makes sense for that project. And then expecting to know, like, when will we know it's successful? When are we mm-hmm. going to come back to it? And then what, what are our next steps after that? How are we going to reevaluate? So setting expectations in, in terms of that kind of timeline. And especially if you're working with somebody who, like, loves metrics. Mm. If there's any way that you can tie that kind of success to this new thing that you're proposing. Mm-hmm is also very powerful. It's really difficult to do, I think, in terms of like creative 
work. Yeah. But it can still get done in terms of like if, if one of your, your metrics is like people will spend less time doing this thing. You're like, great, how many hours did we get back? And then how could you use those hours for something else? I think especially when it comes to like a bigger team wide change as well, it's working with them to figure out when would be the right place to implement this and determining like from the start how long we would like that to to go. So it might make sense like with a bite-sized feature, we're going to try it out for this thing. And then we'll do a retrospective, we'll see how it worked, and then we can decide to apply it to other features. If somebody, especially like on a, a team that has multiple feature pods going at the same time, or, you know, in the future, that's just how they work. Being able to be like the test pilot in terms of we're going to try this new structure. And then they can go and like report back their findings to share with the other team. Yeah, I think something that's in there is the idea of patience. Mm -hmm. What is that? <laughs> uh, I don't understand. <laughs> for, for like, it's, it's so interesting. It struck me actually when you said like, here's a problem, right? And then you were like, I'm not going to solve that right now. I'm going to work with the team at when, when the right time to solve that is. And I think it is easy to actually go where Aaron just went, right? Into like, problem, let's solve it now. It's more my style. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to dive into that and actually be like, okay, when does it work for you? Let's do it with this next feature. We'll try it. You know, like that sort of, I think that there's... There, I'm like, there all is... right, guys, hear me out. If we're just willing to bleed we can get this done so much faster. <laughs> yeah, I, th yes. I think it's like one, especially if you're coming onto a team or a project that has, you've identified a, a multitude of issues that you could go solve, figuring out yeah. which one makes sense, like prioritizing the problems. By the way, one thing I'm really kind of excited to ask you about is I get the impression you have quite a few of these. <laughs> and we've been, uh, I think we've actually done a really good job and sort of going over the high level principles and approach to this. Um, I think some really good stuff has come up. Do you feel comfortable with like a particular change that you drove or a particular team that you worked with that you feel particularly proud of that you wouldn't mind just telling us the story of how that happened? Something I really enjoyed doing while I was working on Marvel Strike Force. So that was like a team of 70 people. I think I could be wrong. But anyways, like a, a mid-sized team. Mm -hmm. And they had this process already in place called, uh, it was a pitch process. So anybody at the studio could come up with an idea and put it through this process to get it into the game. Which fundamentally, I'm like, uh, that rocks. Like, I, I love that. Uh, any place I can do something like that, like I'm, I'm on board with. And the team was small enough, like small enough, 70 people's lot. But it was small enough that like you actually, that was actually feasible. You could actually mm -hmm. get in front of senior leadership and be like, here's my idea. And they would take their time every other week for an hour to hear out these things. When I came onto the team, that was already a process, but I was kind of given the broad direction of like, make it better. And I'm like, okay, like, well, let's see. Let's see how it goes. And so what I observed is that that freedom was there and that is very cool, but people were coming in uh, pretty raw and just like, bam, here's my like my my deck that's like five pages long. What do you think? And then it would just be like a barrage of questions from senior leadership mm. of things mm -hmm. that they probably could have figured out ahead of time. And then ultimately having the idea shut down, not never in like a disrespectful way, like this is so stupid. Like, why did you come here with this? It would never be like that. But it was just like there were a lot of questions that they they could have done a lot more homework leading into it 
to make sure we all had, we had that all taken care of. So what I did was I, after seeing this happen a couple of times, I worked with like our lead designer and two of our product managers and our executive producer to help put together like more refined pitch deck. So they got a template of what are the things that the people in this room, the stakeholders who are asking these questions and ultimately green lighting ideas, what do they care about? What do they ask about most? And putting that in the template so that they, the people who came up with these ideas would essentially be forced to go do that homework before they got into the room. And the downside of that is that like, oh, it took more time to flesh out an idea right. because you had to go find those answers. Higher barrier to entry, yeah. right? Yeah. But the result was, I think every single idea that made it through, except for like one, for the several months that we started implementing that, got greenlit. Wow. You know, in terms of actually like, yes, we would like this. And that's amazing because you were saying some of them were getting rejected on yeah. just chaotic grounds before. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I can't read this 10-page document, <laughs> sir or ma'am. Like, get this out of my office, basically. And that and that's a shame because that could have been player value that yeah. was left on the table, right? Yeah. So. I do also think like, so that was like on the, say I was just a, you know, a person in QA who had an idea and wanted to present something. Yeah. That solved like that, most of that issue. Uh, but then on the stakeholder side too, the expectations were reset a little bit, which is like, this does not have to be the perfect pitch. Mm. You know, the things that they're putting in this deck are not 100%, we are making this exact thing. Mm-hmm. Because again, it could be someone who doesn't have like an expertise in a certain area of the game pitching something and that should be allowed. But it's the the nugget of the idea. Is that compelling? Like, is that something we want in the game? Mm. And being able to get like senior leadership and the stakeholders to think about it in that way made like the approval process way more easy because it was easy for them to understand like, yes, I see the value in this. And yes, this is something we should have in the game eventually. And you know, that got things more greenlit more rapidly as well. Because there, there was a period of iteration after it was like, yes, thumbs up. That's really cool. Yeah. So we've talked about your one a story you've given about like how you actually drove a positive change that led to more good ideas, basically making into a game. I am curious about how you prioritize when you show up on a team that is semi-functional or dysfunctional. And there's always a million things that you could do to make things better. This is a different type of prioritization. It's how do I help this team become functional? And I'm curious, where do you focus? How do you think about that? Because in this case, it's less about patience of like, well, we'll have to wait to do this or that. It's more like, I can't do all this at once. What do you do first? That's a great question. Something I've been doing recently in the past two and a half years of my career is whenever I come onto a new team, I like to talk to as many people as possible on that team, at least like people I would be working with, again, stakeholders, people who care about like what my team is working on and getting the, their list of grievances, <laughs> what's affecting their lives. Mm -hmm. And then figuring out like almost immediately what's some low hanging fruit that I can start offloading either their plate or just, you know, fixing it entirely. Because for a lot of these, I feel like a lot of the issues I've run into is people simply do not have the time slash that is not something will not be their high priority, but it might be a high priority for a producer. And so being able to quickly identify that kind of thing and just doing it, just being like, I'm going to own it. I'm going to figure it out. Don't worry about it. That's been my, my process right now. I still have like this ongoing list of long-term things that I need to address. 
But what are some things that I can do in the next week to start getting that ball rolling? Mm -hmm. And so even if like the the long term, like success of that or result might take a while to actually see, putting that practice into place sooner rather than later is something I'm willing to kind of just jump into. Assuming it's not like a radical, I'm not asking us like as a company to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on some software or something like that. If it's like little things I can do within the existing system, that's why I jump onto first. There's something interesting there versus other, and maybe this is wrong in sort of how we often do product priority for game, or maybe there is a, oh, I've got a big problem I've got to solve, but there's also this, these smaller low hanging fruit things that I could do to make things better today. Mm -hmm. And I have ideas in my head and rather than just saying like, this is why I think you do that. I'm just going to like, why do you choose those smaller things? Just to like be really clear about it. Like, why do you choose those smaller things instead of going, oh, here's this big sort of long tail project that I think is going to really level up the team. I'm going to start with these smaller low hanging fruit things. This might be like unprofessional of me, but I try to reduce clutter in my own workspace as much as possible. Mm. And so whenever I see uh, small requests come in or small processes that have to be done manually, or I'm like, why do I like, why is someone else doing this when you can do it yourself? That's the kind of mm -hmm. problem I like to solve so that individuals have fewer like roadblocks for them. I'm thinking of, um, some of the principles behind Kanban and that idea of, you know, you lower the water level to spot the blockages in the river. Mm -hmm. And I see you sort of like one of the reasons you're picking low hanging fruit is I need to get this stuff out of the way, because if I don't, for me and the team, when I try to do this big change, these things are going to constantly distract us. And I'm going to constantly be like, oh, so now I'm going to like make the deck about how we're going to make this big. And it's like, wait, never mind. I need to go and input the addresses to the Salesforce thing, because that's actually still something I have to do, even yeah. though it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And I run into this with like, oh, we're, in, we're in games, we work with creative types a lot. And so like to be able to give like designers or artists the space to just do their work and iterate on something without constant interruptions is like, that's what I, yeah. I aim to give anything I can do. Every once in a while, I, I become like semi tech support, <laughs> you know, it's just like, they'll be like, Leslie, why doesn't my computer turn on? <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're going to figure out a long-term thing for this. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, it's stuff like that where I, you know, I will immediately, all these things that they have. You should be like, did you try turning it off and then turning it back on again? <laughs> that, that did work one time. That last time that I was asked that, that's what worked. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it is for me is like, I, I know all of the people I work with, like all of the individual contributors I work with have a, a million things on their list that would make them better at their jobs or have better time management, whatever. But they've deprioritized it because that's just like, they can't even think about it. They have a million other things to do. And so being able to find out what those are and just make their quality of life day to day better is that's going to just serve us so well in the long run. There's something there, two things. One is there's a trust building function that's occurring while you're doing that. Yeah. And two, there's a, I've used like a time horizon thing, but really it's, you are saying, I recognize that not all of you have the ability today to abstract from like the, just all the tasks you have. I'm going to abstract and I will help you from an abstracted perspective, but in ways that actually help you in your day to day so that you can focus more and better because part of my job as a leader or producer or whatever, however you view that is the abstracted view and then using that to your benefit. 
Is that like, sorry, I'm kind of summarizing here. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That's, that's exactly what it is. Every once in a while, I find myself in a weird position where I'm like, hang on, is this my job? <laughs> I'm like, right. you know, like, <laughs> am I really working with like the support team right now or the IT team to, to figure out these problems? And then I, I always end up coming back to that same conclusion. I'm like, well, this actually is important. Yeah. They just haven't had the time or like they, they're not going to prioritize it because they have, you know, bigger things to do. And yeah, sure. Like I have longer term things to do, but sometimes like it's that individual like needs, he needs it right there and then. And, and that's fine. Yep. Producers have this weird, they run into these funny roles of like also being like the party planner and everything like that too. And so it kind of falls into these, this weird like admin task kind of situation. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's like when I, when I pull back and I think about being able to focus on these small things makes them better at their job. And that's what is ultimately important to me. Yeah. I love that. So if I've struck out one more layer and I, I'm thinking about like, okay, cool. So you show up. Monday, you look at that list, you're like, okay, these are, you know, this, these are the different things, what am I going to prioritize? What is your overall? Like, what are you prioritizing against? Like, what's the, if you were like, well, there's, there's some set of, I don't know, principles or values, or there's a statement you want to be true, or like, what is it that you go? Well, this is the thing I prioritize at the top should help this the most or Mm -hmm. should mean this the most, whatever that is. You, I Hopefully this is a somewhat clear question, but like, what's the way, what's your prioritization, sort of your, your scheme around that, your rubric or? Right. My uh, thesis is I want to make myself, I want to work myself out of a job, basically. Mm-hmm. Like I would like to be able to set processes or make things clear enough that I hopefully like look around at my team and I'm like, ah, they can do this themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't need me anymore. I have yet to see any team get to that point, which is good for my own job security. But like, <laughs> it's like an idea I want to get towards that everybody on my team has the tools they need to be successful. Mm. That they know, they know what, I don't like saying this phrase, but I'm going to say it. They know what good looks like. Mm-hmm. They know what success is and they know when they have all the answers they need to be able to move on to the next step. And I'm just helping them get there. Like I'm helping them get used to that process they, you know, they started seeing, yeah, just like, you know, what does it mean to be able to be successful in this particular task? So that's overall what I, I strive to do is like, I'm trying, I try to make myself obsolete. I don't think that's, you know, that's not actually going to happen. Because again, I think there there needs to be somebody to like have that brain space to be constantly reevaluating how we do things. And there is totally a world in which individual contributors, you know, designers, I mostly work with designers right now, do have that brain space to be able to think about their work in that way. It's just really hard to context switch in that that kind of way. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks so much, Leslie, for joining us today. I want to go over some key takeaways about driving change on your team as a leader. And I know obviously some of this was very production focused, but I I think it applies to pretty much any leader who wants to make changes on their game team. Number one, change takes time. Don't expect everything to improve overnight. Got to have patience, which as we've determined, I do not have. Number two, being curious will help you know what to change. Understand what the team's pain points are and help solve them. This will build your credibility and influence as well, especially if you're new at the organization. Number three, resistance should be handled with empathy and patience. 
Understand what type of resistance you're dealing with and devise an approach that works for your team and your situation. Number four, trust is the primary currency that will allow you to drive change, period. The more trust you have with the leaders above you and the team, the more leeway you're gonna have to move things forward. Number five, understand what the deeper purpose or value is behind a change you want to make so that you can pick the right solution for your situation. Great. Leslie, anything you want to add as we wrap up? No, I think you uh, you covered it. This was uh, this is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Did you enjoy this content? If you did, join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter in the episode show notes or at buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. That's buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. See you next time.